0: Do your students sometimes have poor learning habits? Are you frustrated with student engagement in your online discussion forums? In today's episode, we'll examine how a Metacognitive Cafe online discussion forum might increase both student engagement and learning.
1: Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning.
0: This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist,
1: and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer.
0: Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Judith Littlejohn, an instructional designer and historian from Genesee Community College in Batavia, New York. She is the 2014 recipient of the State University Chancellor's Award for Excellence in Service and the 2015 recipient of the State University of New York Award for Excellence in
2: Innovative Instruction. Welcome, Judy. Thank you.
1: Today's teas are?
2: Oh, mine is a Twining's Forest Blend that I got in Epcot. Mine's an English Afternoon.
1: And mine is a Tea Forte Black Tea. Today, we'd like to talk to you about the Metacognitive Cafe online discussion forum that you developed. What prompted you to develop this?
2: At Genesee Community College, we have a provost who really promotes critical thinking. And as part of her initiatives, in January 2014, we had a critical thinking workshop with Rush Cosgrove from the Foundation for Critical Thinking. And so at that point, he talked a lot about the elements of thought and different ways to critically analyze whatever we're reading. So I took his elements of thought and incorporated them into my online discussions then and tried to focus the students on becoming aware of bias and, you know, the different, of course I'm blanking out on what all the elements of thought are. But um, then shortly after that in 2016, we had Dr. John Drager come over and spend the day with us. He's the director of the scholarship of teaching and learning at Buffalo State. And he has a blog called improve with metacognition. And I found his ideas really interesting. He based a lot of what he does off of an article by Kimberly Tanner and she's a biologist and she's at San Francisco State University. And she wrote an article about helping students in biology with their metacognition, and she had a table of discussion prompts that she uses. And so John Drager shared Kimberly Tanner's table of prompts, and it was all about what they were getting out of the reading and becoming aware of how they learn and what's successful for them in their struggles to try to learn all this biology content. And so Drager works with grad students, and a lot of what he did was really interesting, but... Where we are in the community college, we have the fundamental problem where it's a struggle to get the students to read. So I thought it would be great to implement questions that help students reflect on how they're learning and what they're reading. But initially, we have to get them to read. So I took the table of prompts that Drager had and kind of broke them down a little bit in a way that would force the students to have to read at least parts of the chapter in order to answer the questions. And so... That led to a series of low stakes discussion questions separate from the content focus, the higher stakes um, discussions that they do throughout the term. And so the students have to engage with specific parts of the chapter of the book and discuss those. And then from that, I kind of branched out into other ways that they think about how they're learning, think about how they're reading and how they can transfer their knowledge and, and things like that. And just become aware of, the process of learning, thinking about how they learn, and thinking about thinking, which, of course, is what metacognition is. How do
1: students respond to just the term, the metacognitive cafe? Many of them probably haven't heard that term before.
2: Well, I I do put the definition at the beginning of every discussion prompt. I just copy and paste it into each discussion so that it
1: So it's a reminder. It reinforces what you're doing with it. (laughs) Consistent.
2: Yeah, it's for consistency. So they see the definition all the time. Whether or not they read it, I don't know. But I noticed that over the course of the semester, at first they'll call their discussion post, you know, like meta, meta one, meta two. And now we're into week, we just started week 11, I think. And so they're starting to write out the word metacognitive Cafe. And they, so to me, that indicates that they're focused a little bit more on what they're doing. They're paying attention a little more. And I survey them a lot to try to get feedback on what they think of the discussions. And it's been overwhelmingly positive. I think one of the byproducts is it builds a lot of community in the class. The students are sharing what they're struggling with content wise and how they're approaching content that's unfamiliar to them, how they reread things or if they take notes and things like that. And they're really giving each other advice and strategies. So this is taking place in an online environment right right it's completely online I have two courses right now history 101 which is ancient world and History 104, which is early Western tradition. And so currently those two courses are engaging in these discussions.
1: Earlier, when I saw you present on this, I was really impressed by it. So I've tried it myself and it's worked really well. One of the things, as you mentioned, is that students start talking about their struggles in the class and it they start to get to know each other a lot more, at least in my experience. And you had relayed the same sort of thing when you talked about it earlier. Could you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about that aspect of it?
2: Yeah, I find that I'm not sure if it's because it's low stakes and the the pressure is off, but the students share a lot more in these discussions. They tell uh, surprisingly personal stories of what their home life is like and what I'd ask them to talk about their study space, you know, their workspace. Do you read and write in the same location? Do you try to read in a quiet place or whatever? And I encourage them to share pictures of where they do their assignments. And it's surprising how much they share. And I feel like you can, you know, I think over the course of an online term, the students kind of group together by the early posters and the late posters but it really is solidifying this community and they they're supportive of each other. They're talking about what they have in common, if they have the same major, or if they have the same struggles. I think a lot of it is finding that other students are struggling with the same content that they are is really affirming for them. They feel, you know, like I'm not the stupid one. I, I can learn this if they're figured it out. Maybe I can, too. And they they really are supportive. So it's been pretty interesting to watch.
1: And they also share study strategies. When you talked about learning Mm -hmm. spaces, they probably, at least in my class, I've used some of the same prompts. Uh, They'll often talk about how important it is to have a place where they can have focused concentration without interruptions. And for some other students, that's a bit of a surprise. So.
2: It is. Right? I have students who, you know, they work two jobs, they go to school, they have kids, they're primary caregivers for their aging parents. You know, all kinds of things are going on and they'll write about how well I'll read for 15 minutes in my car before I go into my, you know, my second job or whatever. And a lot of them are studying in a very haphazard way like that. And I think they watch. The post of the students who say, I plan this into my day, I schedule my time and things like that. There's a lot of discussion of time management and it really wakes some of the students up to say, okay, if if my education is a priority, my studying has to be a priority too. And then they think they try to reorganize their time a little bit better. What role do you play
0: in the conversations? Because... It seems like that's moving away from the content area stuff to more about like how you how you are a learner, how you exist as a learner. One of the things that we talked a little bit about in a reading group that we had on our campus recently was about kind of the faculty member becoming a little vulnerable in certain circumstances so that uh, students can relate to them a little bit more. And they're not just like some sort of authority figure who has no emotions. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) So with these discussions, I try to, I don't insert myself a whole lot, but I try to get in there a little bit now and then. I use, we use Blackboard as our learning management system. So I do turn on the post rating. So what I do is I give, so that means you can give the students stars on their discussions, like zero through five stars. So whenever somebody posts, you know, what appears to be a genuine response their initial post, I give them the five star rating. So they know, and they can tell that the instructor gave them the rating. So they know that I'm right there, that I read what they wrote. Even if I don't comment, they see the stars. And then where I feel like it's appropriate, then I will comment on somebody else's. And I do, so that one where we talk about our, our workspace, I do share a picture of my office setup at home because that, so I teach as an adjunct. So most of this is going on when I'm at home after my work day. And so I show them that. And There's a few different things that they come up with. So I have one pretty basic question, which is, why is it important to read the chapter before you start to take the quizzes? One of the students made a great analogy, and she said, I read the chapter before I do the quiz or before I start the writing assignment. Because if I was trying to change a tire on my car and I had no idea how to, where to find the jack, how to, how to take the tire off and any of where any of the tools were and how to go about the process, I would not be able to change the tire in my car. And it was pretty good. And so I jumped in on that one and I said, well, I really like your analogy. And then that kind of led to more discussion of analogies and things like that, which I like because I think sometimes when the instructor posts, it kind of ends the conversation. And sometimes people won't post after the instructor. So I liked that one. So, yeah, I'm just kind of on the sidelines, mm-hmm. I'd say, and try to jump in now and then where I feel like it's not going to hinder the conversation. and um,
1: But support it.
2: Right, yeah, support it.
1: Going back to a point you made earlier about things bleeding through and them getting to know each other, uh, the first time I used this was last spring in a labor economics class where I, in some of the discussions, I'll ask them to talk about how the material relates to their future career or how it relates to other classes I'll be taking. And they started opening up quite a bit in my classes, too, about their work environment, about their family environment, about having to work a couple of jobs in some cases, or raising small children, or having relatives who had health issues that they had to assist with. And. What was really interesting is that bled over into the content discussion. So when they were talking about various labor market topics, they'd make references to other people's living conditions and how they might be able to relate to this concept or how the things they had said in the other discussion were relevant here. And it was nice to see that bleed through because they they were making posts that were much more meaningful in both discussions than I've normally noticed in the past. Nice.
2: I noticed too, that they they post more, meaning, more sentences, more, they seem to become a little bit more articulate in their posts instead of just barely hitting the keywords and and calling it good. They really elaborate on their ideas more and they respond to each other a lot more. So instead of, I mean, there's always a handful of students who respond to another student and say, I agree, but I find uh, much more content. Like I agree, especially when you said whatever, or when you said X, it reminded me of Y. And so I find that the depth of their discussions is a lot better. Have students articulated
0: that this metacognitive cafe is something that they're finding really beneficial? Other than like your observations, like have they actually articulated that?
2: Yeah, so I survey them. In addition to the institutional you know, end-of-course survey, I do give them informal surveys in the class through Blackboard. And I typically do a halftime survey and then an end-of-course survey. And I give them five extra credit points so that... encourage them to answer. So I can see who responded, but not what they said. Mm -hmm. So it's still anonymous in that respect. And I just finished up the halftime survey, and I wrote down a quote that one of the students... So in the surveys that I write, I can ask very pointed questions about what we're experimenting with. And as an instructional designer, I try all different things in my classes, and I want to get feedback while it's live, and while we still have the the other half of the semester to make changes. So but one of them in History 104, the Western Tradition, said, The Metacognitive Cafe is a great idea. It seems like a small break from ordinary coursework where you can actually talk about how you do the coursework, which is interesting. It seems to me that most people enjoy the metacognitive cafe. So I like that. And a quote I had from the past, I think from last semester was, the discussions sometimes did not mean much to the coursework, although it did help me learn how to learn the material better and i thought you know i was having a conversation with my mom yesterday about teaching and what she was asking me a lot of questions about teaching online and i said you know my whole thing is of course i want them to grasp the learning outcomes but i don't care if they memorize dates and names so as long as thematically you know they understand the major themes throughout history but if if i can help them learn how to learn then they'll be unstoppable like that's my whole goal is to make sure the students can figure out how to tackle some new ideas and figure them out and look at them with a critical thinking perspective and make the most of it and take it with them. That's something that I like
0: really value in my classes too. I teach mostly web design classes. So students really have to learn to learn because the stuff changes all the time. Right. And they don't realize how important that is. So it seems to me like the metacognitive cafe is a good opportunity to help students kind of move away from the idea of fluency illusion or the The idea that like, oh, this is really familiar, so therefore I know it to kind of recognizing that like there is a way that we retain information and we need to practice it and retrieve it and all of those sorts of things. And by having kind of those guided questions, they become more aware that that's even a thing.
2: Right. Yeah, I agree. I think it's uh, it's been good. I think it's it's not a whole lot of effort on my part and it's not every week I give the students a checklist of what they have to accomplish that week and approximately how long each activity will take. And I usually put about 20 minutes for this, so I don't think it, it takes a lot of time for them to go through the process of typing up their response. I don't know how much time they spend thinking about it, but I do think it's really been helpful and I, I think it's worth carving that time out of the week for the students to do that. Can you share some examples of some of your questions? Let's see, I brought an index card with a couple of questions. So the first one that I asked them is that first week. So say in History 101, the ancient world, it it talks about the agricultural revolution. And I just fundamentally say, what did you already know about the agricultural revolution? And what did you learn in this chapter that was new to you? And they... They can't answer that if they don't open the book.
1: (laughs) But it activates prior knowledge. Oh, absolutely makes right.
2: But remember, my first goal was is to get them to read. So at least you know they have to look at the book. They've got to at least read the five or ten pages on the agricultural revolution and find some new idea that they can point to. And uh, so it's a
1: little nudge to get them to develop better practices. And I
2: follow it up. The next thing they do, um, well, every week, every chapter they do mastery quizzes. And if they don't read the book first. The mastery quizzes take close to three hours. And I tell them to budget two hours every week. You know, after they spend an hour reading, then two hours for the quiz. And are these and, uh, the
1: inquisitive quizzes in Norton?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I use Norton inquisitive, if you're not familiar with it, it's a, sort of a gaming method of quizzing. And so the students have to wager. Um, they wager points according to how confident they are that they know the answer. And they have to earn 1,500 points in the quiz to get 10 points in the gradebook. So if they're wrong, they lose points.
1: So it forces them to think about how well they know, well which they is know also another way of yes. developing metacognition.
2: Right. And then it's set up really well to keep targeting the questions that they're getting wrong. And it tells them where to look in the book. And you know, gives them a lot of helpful feedback. And the, the students overwhelmingly like those quizzes. They, they dislike them at first because they're not used to their chapter quiz taking so long. But once they get into it and get used to how the system works, they really do like it. They've got different kinds, too. So you can watch a short video clip and then answer a question. Or they've got sorting and putting things in order, which I love. You know, I love to do timelines and cause and effect type things. To help them make connections across mm -hmm. events. Right. So it's not just multiple choice quizzes or just true and false. So I like that a lot. But, yeah. Oh, so that was one question. (laughs) (laughs) There's one, I knew we were talking about something. So, yeah, I asked them, what interesting fact did you learn? Oh, and then another week, you know, I'll say, did anything new or interesting in the chapter change the way you think about, you know, X, like change the way you think about the Middle Ages or what information, you know, to sort of like, change any, pre- you know, to address those preconceived notions that people have. I think at this level, the students have trouble understanding the difference between what they learned in high school and what history is in college, because they don't understand that high schools teach them citizenship and not history, not major global historical themes. They think they know global history, but they really don't. And so a lot of what they learn in college is pretty eye-opening, if they will admit that their eyes need to be opened. So...
1: Because students come in with pre-existing mm-hmm. models of how the world works, exactly. and much of it is wrong. And yeah. <laughs> we need to tear that down. But they have to recognize it, and forcing them to confront that, and think about that, and reflect on that mm-hmm. could be really helpful.
0: Especially yeah. because students, you know, they're trying to they're trying to just get the grade. Sometimes, especially if they have a lot of other things that they're balancing in their lives, and they don't take the time to reflect. So, by building it into your course, right, like. We can finally get students to kind of make those connections. But we have, you know, it it becomes sort of the responsibility of a faculty member to help students develop that practice because it's not intuitive. It seems like an
2: extra, right? Right. An extra
0: little thing, but I don't think they always see the value in it until they've done it.
2: Right. Yeah. And it's tough. I think it's really tough with a gen ed that if I have a class of 32 students, typically there's one who will say they want to be a historian. All the rest of them are only there because they need a world civilization requirement and they they don't want to take the course. They'll say it right out. You know, I don't, I'm not interested in history. History is boring. And so, you know, you've got that uphill struggle right there. And then for them to realize they need to Take serious time on this course that is not in their program, as they see it. It it can be tough. I have a couple students right now who just don't seem to understand why you would have to take history, say, if you're going to be an artist. Which, you know, how could you not? (laughs) How could you not want to take history as an artist? Because yeah, it's like influencing artistic movements. Like history and art, I think reflect each other. And if you, why would you only want half the story? So that's tough. I'm so glad that you brought up this stuff about general education,
0: because I think a lot of faculty struggle with some of the same issues, right? Like, why am I here? And then trying to get those students engaged is such an upward battle, or at least it feels like it is. Are you finding that the Metacognitive Cafe is starting to convert some of those folks? A little bit, a
2: little bit. That, and I also work really hard in all my classes to help the students find something in history that they can kind of latch onto. So they... And thematically. So early on within the first couple of weeks of the class, they need to find a theme to track. So if you, if you are an artist, you could choose art, or if you're a sports person, you could choose, you know, sport history and kind of track how, what changes and uh, what new trends and things started throughout whatever era we're studying. And I think that helps a lot too, because... You know, it gives
1: them a more personal connection. Yeah,
2: exactly. If, connects so they to their can, prior
1: knowledge and information.
2: Right, and so that's helpful. And they do. I do have them kind of share that too. You know, what like what topics they're researching and why, and those discussions are fun because when students are do working on research papers and they spend all this time looking for sources and writing their outlines and all that, and finally writing the paper, to finally be able to share what they've been researching, I think is really good. That It's easy to do that in the classroom, but online it's a little tougher. So I try to make sure they have a forum where they can point out what the most interesting things they've they've discovered during their research process, where they're finding sources and the different facts that they discovered, I think is helpful.
1: One of the things I've asked in my classes since I've been doing this at the end is the last Metacognitive Cafe is to reflect back on the class. And I ask them also if there's anything based on your question. One part of it is what has caused them to alter their view of the world? Or what was the most surprising thing they learned in the course? And what's been really interesting is the most common response is that what they enjoyed the most were the Metacognitive Cafes. One of the things I think we both do to some extent is we try to nudge them towards better learning strategies. And. And as part of that, I have some on space practice, interleave practice, and so forth, and also having them break that myth of learning styles that they've come in with. Mm -hmm. And what they're always saying is that they were amazed that so much of what they had learned and what they had been told in their earlier classes about rereading and highlighting and focusing on their learning styles is not based on evidence. And many of them are saying they wish they had learned much of this stuff back in elementary school, and it would have made their educational career much more productive
0: sounds like you know in, in both of your cases an interesting way of you know if it's a gen, general education class that maybe students aren't buying into the subject matter
2: mm-hmm. at least they
0: can buy into the idea of learning how to learn and finding strategies and things that could apply elsewhere through the lens of a particular discipline which if anything at least that's something that they can like connect to mm-hmm. if they're finding it hard
2: to connect to the content yeah that's a, that's a good insight
1: now, one thing we we usually ask is, what lessons have you learned while doing this? How have your practice changed over time? Hmm. It sounds like it's worked pretty well from mm-hmm. the beginning.
2: I think um, a few of the questions could be a little bit more thoughtful. I don't know. I ask them things about, you know, like motivation and um, how they, how will they transfer the skills they're learning in this class to their other courses. We have a 16-week semester, so first week we don't do one of these, so we've got 15 of them. And I try to kind of alternate between going back into the specific chapter so they have to look at it or else, you know, just their own personal way of learning and try to line things up so that to a certain extent it goes along with what else they're doing in the course, if it's research or timelines or things like that. so. Every now and then, I just have to look back and make sure that as I change the course activities, that the metacognitive cafe discussions are still aligned correctly. Yeah, I like John some of what you said about giving, you know, having them read about the myth of learning styles and whatnot. Some of that material I send out in announcements throughout the week and just give them different resources that they can look through. But maybe incorporating some of that more because. Some of that is hard to dispel.
1: <laughs> and some of them resist it. Uh, when I've done that, you know, some of them said they just don't believe it. Uh, this semester I had an interesting experience where I posted a short video as a prompt on one of them from the learning scientists. They have some nice videos there on, on how we learned. And students were saying, well, they only talked about a couple of studies and I'm not convinced. I'd like to see more evidence. So I posted a list of five or six papers and they were really grateful and they were discussing those. And that kind of surprised me because usually in an informal discussion like that, it tends not to get quite as technical and it's been interesting. So from now on, um, I've been adding some research papers on at least the things that are related to learning science and so forth um, just to provide more support.
2: That's a good idea to to add that upfront in the question because sometimes I'll follow up on something that they're discussing. And if the student isn't if they're not posting till the end of the week and you know the late posters they then sometimes the students won't go back and read it so i may have i may post some information that would reinforce or re explain what what it is they're trying to talk about, but they've already moved on and they're not gonna go back and look again. So that's a tough thing in Blackboard, if there were a way that you were alerted that somebody posted, you know, responded to your post or things like that, like one of the failings of Blackboard. So some of these questions could have supporting material sort of embedded within and they could choose to engage with that or not. But that would that might be a good idea to try in the future.
0: I like the idea of sort of having the opportunity to engage with those extra materials, but not a requirement to do so. So that might help to engage like the wide range of students that we have, some who might want to take the deep dive and Others who maybe don't want to, but at least you can hit them somewhere, right? Right, And and allow them to engage with the subject matter. They might watch a short video, but they don't want to read the paper. And
1: the way I've been phrasing mm -hmm. it since then is I have the short video. They're usually five to ten minutes. And then I'll put, for those who would like to see more evidence in parentheses, here are some resources.
2: That's a great idea.
1: One of the things we normally ask people is, what would you like to try next? It doesn't have to be related to this in your classes.
2: Actually, based on what we've just discussed, I think the next thing I would want to do is embed, you know, some of the articles and videos that you referred to and that type of thing. And I think that would be good. Just, you know, kind of update the questions, update what they're working on and just help the students learn how to learn. Great, great, and it's working
1: really well. I was yeah. so impressed when I saw the results, and you shared with us some of the comments from students that I had to adopt it right away, and I, mm-hmm. I'm going to keep doing it yeah. as long as it keeps working. As I well.
0: adopted a couple of the questions, I didn't do the full thing, but I did use some of the questions, some of the questions, especially the workspace one um, mm-hmm. for some of my students, and it was really interesting. So I'd like to figure out how how I can do it more too.
2: Yeah, I like. I want in. I love getting, encouraging the students to share something like their workspace. I love when they post a picture I just, because you can see, like, I think it even shows a certain amount of trust, you know, that they're going to show a picture of their their room. I know, one I remember really well, she studied in her bedroom. She had a, like a little desk next to her bed and she had a sloped ceiling and a calendar. Like she used her ceiling as a calendar and wrote all her due dates on the ceiling over her bed. It was crazy. But <laughs> I thought, wow, like you're just putting it all out there when, you sh- when you're sharing things like that. And it's, it's really, really good to see. It's just a sense of community. So I, I think these little discussions that started out just trying to get them to read sort of compounded into all these other benefits that i didn't anticipate at first but I, it's really great to see so i'm glad you guys are interested in it too
1: i think it's come up probably at least a dozen times in workshops just okay. this semester i've suggested it to many of our faculty particularly in online classes because it really does help build a sense of community that i've never seen in my online classes before
2: hmm. good one oh i know okay uh <laughs> I know. I knew I had an <laughs> um <laughs> One thing I want to do, and we, John and I were talking about this the other day when we were you know, arranging all of this, is I think it would be really interesting if we could go back over, you know, this is my fourth semester of this now. So if we could kind of go back and see how the students responded to these discussions, and especially the ones who said, well, I already knew this, I already knew this, or, you know, the ones who are in denial, and then see how their final grades were mm. and kind of chart that over time, maybe see how they do in their program. And as opposed to the students who are who you can see by their responses are more open and saying, oh, I'll try this and I'll try that and see how their final grades were. And if there's any patterns over time, I think that would be really interesting. It would be really interesting if if other people are adopting stuff too to actually have it in some different disciplines
0: and yeah, levels that would be and great. stuff to see how that, how that might yeah. turn out.
2: We can all do that.
0: Sounds we'll like you that have together a scholarship a of teaching yeah. and learning like <laughs> article coming your way. <laughs>
1: My <laughs> informal observation is that the students who tend to be the last ones to post are mm-hmm. the ones who say, I just don't buy this. Right. Um, and they generally haven't put a lot of thought into it. And they also generally are not. The strongest students overall. Right, yeah. Uh, And it's sometimes difficult to get through to them. It's perhaps an example of that old Dunning-Kruger effect, which (laughs) is that the students with the worst metacognition tend to be those who have the the highest impression of their abilities and so forth. Not always, but uh, it's a pattern that I think if we did do some sort of analysis of that, I wouldn't be surprised.
0: Well,
2: it sounds like we have a hypothesis, perhaps a (laughs) method. (laughs) (laughs) I think I would like to follow up on that. I think it would be interesting. So let's get in touch with our institutional research folks and see what we can come up with. (laughs) Sounds like a plan.
1: Okay. And we will post show notes that will include the resources that Judy mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll include the questions that we've included in the, the notes, as well as any other materials that we find interesting.
0: Yeah. Thanks or for joining thrilled. us today. I really well, thank appreciate you
2: taking the time.
1: Thank you for joining us again, Judy. You've given a lot of workshops here, and we really <laughs> appreciate it. You do some really good things.
2: Well, thank you. It's been fun.